If you enjoy this podcast, please like us on Facebook and follow us on Instagram and visit our website at lifebetweenthevines.com. The teaching winemaker just pulled out a thief, rolled up a pallet of kegs, and, and just started, you know, pulling out samples and tasting us on it blind, asking us to identify the grape varietal. I had no idea how to respond to that because, mm. one, I had never been in a setting where you tasted wines blind. Two, the names of the varietals, I had never even heard of those things. Discovering and tasting wine shouldn't be a homework assignment. And we believe that the people who are closest to wine have the best stories. So open a bottle. And welcome to podcast number 544. This week we feature Stu Smith, proprietor of Smith Madrome Vineyards, Spring Mountain, Napa Valley. Many people visit Napa Valley and never get to see what I call the real Napa Valley. Several wineries scattered around the valley represent winemaking at its very best. These wineries are humble, not super fancy, and make the most kick-ass wine you'd ever want to drink. Smith Madrone on Spring Mountain is one of those wineries. Dating back to the early 70s, Stu and his brother Charlie make some of the best wine you'll ever taste. I never tire of talking with Stu. I caught up with him at his home in St. Helena simply because we couldn't meet at the winery because it was covered in snow to dig a little deeper into the history of Smith Madrone. This history goes very deep. You can also hear Stu on our Vino Lingo segment defining the term fire safe farming. Coming up on 15 years of Life Between the Vines and uh, Back to the beginning, we've had uh, one particular guest who's come around a few times, and always a pleasure to see you, Stu Smith of Smith Madrone Vineyards on Spring Mountain. How you doing, Stu? I'm doing fine, and thank you for having me again. Thank you for being here, or I should say being here. I'm actually in your home, so <laughs> thank you for having me in your house. It's always a pleasure to see you. Uh, unique times, this is mid-February, would it be about February 23rd-ish or 4th? 4th or 5th. And uh, yeah, and uh, you've dealt with fire last couple years and now you're dealing with snow, kind of crazy. Yes. Um, uh, I will say that it's not the biggest snowstorm that I've kind of lived through here uh, in the 70s, early 70s, either 73 or 74, I can't remember. We had a little over 24 inches of snow up at the vineyard and winery. And it took three days, three full days, before Napa County plowed the road to where anybody could get up and down the mountain. Now, that having been said, this particular storm that started on Thursday night um, was clearly the most destructive. Um, whether it was, well, first of all, the snow, we, we had just under a foot of snow up on top of the mountain, so half of what we had in 73, but it was a really wet snow just intensely wet and driving we, we tried to get up uh, Charlie Julianne and I tried to get up the mountain on um, Friday morning and we got as high as uh, Langtree Road and couldn't get any further uh, we did get back up uh, that evening and there were a number of cars that were um, stranded on the road yeah I'll bet um, and what was most interesting is the number of large oak branches that had come down across the road. Uh, there, there, I mean, there were, there were several dozens, if not more, 
of both trees having oak trees falling over. There's one spot in uh, above Langtree um, where the root ball was eight feet in diameter. And I'm looking down, uh, straight down into the hole. And it, it, it's got to be a good seven, eight feet wow. deep. And it took out about four feet of the of the pavement. Mm. Oh, man. So Napa County is going to have a bit of a problem, uh, you know, expense putting that thing back together again. But there were just limbs everywhere. And then when we got to our winery, we saw the olive trees. And I have never seen um, our olive trees decimated by snow or anything like like this storm did. We, we just had uh, every tree had branches just ripped off of them. And... Uh, uh, it's qu- it's quite a mess now. Somebody asked me the other day, "Is the snow good or bad for the vineyards?" Well, it's it's not bad at all. The snow will eventually melt, and the and the and the the melt will go into the ground, and the ground needs all the water we can give it. Even though we're approaching normal uh, for this year, it's we're, we're dealing with a you know four or five year deficit of drought. So we need every drop we can get. The other one is um, uh, cold has a tendency to kill off a lot of bugs. And we vineyardists don't like bugs. Uh, we we kind of like to have a bug-free, especially the bad bugs, uh, uh, you know, bug, bug-free environment. <laughs> and and it's, uh, it's entertaining, uh, it's challenging, but it doesn't present anything other than a kind of a, a, an interruption to... Uh, the daily work. We lost power on early Thursday night. Um, today is Sunday. We doubt that we'll get power back until late tomorrow. Do you have a generator? Uh, well, we have a small generator, um, but not enough to run the winery. And then we have a generator, a, a bigger one for our springs that we keep down at the springs so that when the fire comes and the PG&E cuts off our power, we can still get water up, which is crucial to uh, fighting the fire and protecting the winery and the and the barn. So, but it's not big enough to run the winery. So, overall, being a winemaker is just such a great lifestyle. You know, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you're fighting, you're fighting everything. There's nothing you're not fighting other than enjoying a glass of wine from time to time. Uh, you know, we don't have plague. No, it's good. Don't say that out loud. That's the, yeah. Okay. You know, there's there's all kinds of things that could go wrong that haven't yet. But two years of, of, uh, of the pandemic was clearly um, difficult for the entire globe. Uh, we then were dealing with uh, the last several months, a year and a half, insurance issues, which is just catastrophically insane, expensive. Um, we have drought, and then we have the constant threat of wildfire, and it reminds me of you know, the, the great uh, 1920s era uh, baseball player, Satchel Page. he had a whole bunch of sayings, and one of them that i kind of been living for the last 14, 16 months is, uh, don't look back, something may be catching. Something, something may be catching you. <laughs> yeah, he was good at that. Yeah. That's, that. But that's true. But you do look back a lot because you look at previous vintages, you look at what the vineyards have gone through, and, and you're quite the expert at that, I have to say. But I do want to look back. I want to talk a, about the history on this particular podcast. Uh, we've talked about it a bit before. Uh, as I recall, you came up to Spring Mountain in 71 from... I first right? walked the property in uh, early fall of 70. And then we were able to close on the property in 70, uh, May of 71. 
Uh, it had been a vineyard in the 1880s. And uh, in June of 71, I got a logging permit from California Department of Forestry to reclaim the vineyard because there were Douglas fir trees about 24, 30 inches. A couple were, you know, several, many maybe were 30 inches, but nothing bigger than 30 inches. But at the base of those Douglas fir trees were little redwood uh, split grape stakes pooched out at about a 35, 40 degree angle because that was the vineyard. And as the vineyard was consumed by phylloxera toward the end of the 19th century, the, the vines died and the um, birds did their thing about spreading seeds out and the dying vines provided shade for the Douglas fir to grow and up they grew and out they went at, um, at an angle. So I want to make a point in the background for our listeners as well as our viewers. We have our friend Tucker who's running around. Uh, Tucker's just a, a sweet puppy of a dog, and uh, he's just kind of not happy that he's not part of this conversation. But uh, you'll hear the noise. We're not in a haunted house. It's okay. At least <laughs> okay. not to the best of my knowledge. What do you know about that history from the 1800s? Because just to throw this in real quick, to the best of my knowledge, there were several, many wineries in this area in the 1800s that, of course, went away years later when Prohibition came along. But what do you know about your, your area? Well, our property uh, was nominally, we, we purchased it thinking it was 200 acres. Um, the, and, and all I can say to anybody who has a certain amount of property, wherever it is, uh, don't get surveyed. <laughs> Rely on the 100-year-old surveyor marks as, as to what it is. Because when you get a modern surveying, you lose a lot of property because it's not really 200 acres. That would hurt. Yeah. Well, fortunately, it's, it's mostly watershed, so it really doesn't have a great deal of value. Um, you know, we, we can't plant it, um, but it's still, you know, I, I guess it's an emotional uh, issue. But th there had been a piece of property that had been put together. George Cook was the original founder of our property. He homesteaded it in 1880. He got the local St. Helena sheriff uh, to write a letter or to go with him down to San Francisco to the United States Land Office, um, office and, um, and uh, got title to the property because he had cleared some of the vineyard, cleared some of the forest, and planted uh, a certain amount of acres of vineyards and planted a row of olive trees. Uh, and that was enough to get him a uh, title. And we have the document, it's called a patent. It was signed by, on December 5th, 1884, by a president that almost nobody has ever heard of, which is Chester A. Arthur. <laughs> yes. Right. Yes, Most people I, go. I, I know who he is. Okay. Not personally, of yeah. course. <laughs> now, the interesting thing about him is that uh, some years ago, we took a little vacation and we were in Washington, D.C. and went up the, um, the uh, Washington Monument, uh, which I didn't know was a dry stack building. There's no mortar. Oh, right. it's, just, it's just stone uh, cut and filed and put in place. Wow. I did not know that. It's, uh, it's an, it's, apparently, it's the largest, uh, highest stone dry stack stone building in, in our country or the world. Um, but in any event, um, there was a plaque that said on December 5th, uh, pardon me, December 6th, 1884, Chester A. Arthur dedicated the Washington Monument. Oh, I don't know. That's, you know, it's, it's, it's kind of a fun little uh, nexus. Sure. 
uh, helps me remember the dates and things. What also makes an interesting point in talking about the dry stack is that perhaps that's one of the major reasons it sustained the damage it did during the quake, which would have been back, what, seven, eight years ago, give or take. Probably a little bit more. Yeah. At our age, right, what I say is if I think it's seven or eight, I double it. I'm a lot closer. <laughs> that works for me, Stu. I'm okay with that. Well, I stole it from somebody else. I, I, didn't, I didn't originate the same. Oh, it's, it's a good thing. It's okay. Oh, but you were asked back there. So, yeah, yeah. So, um, this, this uh, George Cook owned it, and it was originally uh, 500 plus acres. We broke off the 200. The other 350 acres got broken up in, into 20 and 40 acre parcels. And as you drive into our property, you go through and right past a cave that's dug into the north side of, of the road. And um, uh, they had a operating winery on that property. And above that cave, uh, there was a wooden winery that was built. Uh, they had a Roman press. Uh, you know, classic Roman press where the log went out and it was on a, a mortared um, focal points and, and, and they pinned the tree. And then they had the wood basket out there. And I, I guess the, they, the number of people that could skinny out to the end of the tree made the press oh. that much, you know, uh, uh, tighter and they got more juice out. And then they would gravity flow. There were two bores drilled through the soil down into the cave so that they could gravity flow with with um, hoses uh, into the cave where they aged the wine. I have yet to find a name. Really? Yeah. Now, our property was, and uh, well, what is our property now, was in the 1888 Viticultural Report. Um, and, and Cook sold to a guy named Modine, and Modine did most of the construction up there, although Cook is the one that started the whole thing. And just to bring up a point, you have the uh, your your special uh, red is a wine called Cook's Flat. Yes, Cook's Flat Reserve, because there's about eight acres on the property. While it's not completely flat, a la the Napa Valley flat, um, it is flat for the hills. And we didn't name it Cook's Flat. It was we knew it was called that when, we, what it when, is. We, when we purchased it. And and the locals have always referred to it as Cook's Flat. It's a nice bit of history, and history is such an important part. There's so much history in this valley that goes well beyond what people know. Yeah. What I've learned over the years, it fascinates the heck out of me. I know you don't have a whole lot of idle moments, but I know you do spend a lot of time on the mountain. But uh, I imagine your mind has to kind of wander back into this history every now and then thinking of what these people dealt with. As an example, you talk about 1880, going up to this isolated area to start a vineyard, just getting there couldn't have been easy. It, it, it wasn't. And I feel really fortunate to have come into the, the valley when I did, because I got to meet a lot of people who were, for lack of another word, aging out. And Herman Hummel was one such person. He owned what is now York Creek um, Vineyards. Uh, and I believe he also uh, owned most of what uh, what is now Spring Mountain Vineyards. And Herman said that um, when he was farming all of this, he would take a pack train into St. Helena to buy supplies. And then they would take the pack train of like 20, 30 mules up the hill again. And then they would go into town every so many months or you know once a quarter or whatever. Um, but I got to know him for a little bit and spend a little time with him. And so that was really interesting. And then Charlie and I 
what is now Pride Mountain Vineyards. Charlie and I uh, farmed in the early 70s for uh, Dr. John Gamble and his wife Babs, and this was the old Summit Winery. And the legend is that um, uh, it was owned at one time by Lily Coit, and that uh, with Prohibition, all the wine got moved out the day or two after Prohibition, and somehow miraculously, the wine barrels all burned. Mm, funny how that happens. It's funny. Yeah. Um, and so anyway, we were able to see in that barn all, and, and, and it was owned by, um, anyway, I can't remember at the moment, uh, senior moment, it'll come back. Um, anyway, in his barn, was all of the harnessing for 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 uh, horses for for plow horses? Yeah, sure. And that's how they took care of the the, the vineyards up on the mountain. Well, and, and just to interrupt real quick, Susan, probably Brian many many years ago, probably goes back close to ten years, maybe. When I was up there and I interviewed her, we were walking through the property and she talked about the occasional sounds of horses and and wagons going through there, people walking and hearing them come up behind them. Of course, there's nothing there. Not that I'm talking about ghosts, but maybe a little bit of history coming back for a moment. Kind of interesting. It, it, it is. And um, and then I was able to, to get to know and um, be friendly with Joe Heights, um, which was which was fun. And, and he was a very irascible guy, but <laughs> but deep down, very nice. And one of the moments I remember quite fondly is that um, in 79, we had won the Gomeo International Judging. They called it the Wine Olympics. And we won the German Wine Division. And I was at a uh, Napa Valley Vintners meeting, and Joe Heitz comes up to me and puts his arm around me and says, good going, kid. And, um, and you know, so the little moments like that. And I got to know Andre Chelichev, worked with him. You know, there's just, you know, I knew both Louis P. and Louis M. Martini. And, and um, so, you know, and then uh, uh, Chuck Carpey and Laurie Wood from um, Fremark Abbey and Brad, um, his brother, um, Webb, uh, Denny Webb, was a professor at UC Davis when I was there doing my master's work. And his brother, Brad Webb, was the winemaker for Fremark Abbey when they opened up in 1968. And so so it was nice to to know all of those people. And, and, um, and so I, I feel as though I've been able to go back and touch some people who go back to the beginning, really, of the Napa Valley wine experience and, and um, wine growth. And it wasn't until somewhere in the 80s, I think the mid-80s, that the wine industry became the most valuable agricultural crop over livestock. When I came here, it was very provincial, mm, sure. uh, very remote. There were still walnut groves in a lot of places. There were still pear orchards. Just south of town, the St. Helena Prune Dehydrator uh, had just kind of uh, ceased operation uh, because there had been so many prunes in the valley. At the time, Napa County had more grapes than Sonoma County. But that's, you know, that over the last uh, 20, 30 years has flipped. Sure. Uh, Napa County is only half the size of Sonoma County. And, and uh, they finally got onto the uh, wine grape bandwagon. And now uh, they have, you know, as they should with their acreage over there, they have about double the acreage that Napa County does. I, I like the idea you talk about touching, you know, back to this history, especially considering coming out of Prohibition, 
the U.S. wine industry was hamstringed because you could only do Sacramento wine and that kind of thing. So it was really molasses going up a hill to restart this industry. It, it was. And uh, what people don't realize is that um, a prohibition ended on December 5th, 1933. And, and the wineries that, that had been here all went into disrepair. All their cooperage was shot. All their wine hoses were gone. All their institutional knowledge of winemaking was gone. There were only a couple wineries that survived Prohibition, and one of them was Beaulieu, and they made wine, I think, two or three others. Whether Martini was one of them, I just don't remember. Um, but Beaulieu certainly did, and they made um, sacramental wine for the church. And um, I suspect uh, the church bought a whole lot more wine than they, <laughs> you know, during Prohibition than they had. Just a little bit. Um, and at Spring Mountain Vineyards, whatever it was called back then, they had a still. And they got tipped off by the sheriff that there was going to be a raid, so make sure you get rid of it. And what they did, apparently, is put the still down a hand-dug well. And, and put it in the water. And then, you know, the, the revenuers would show it because the, the sheriff and the revenuers weren't always on the same side. No, I'm sure. Yeah. And, um, and so that was kind of an interesting uh, little tidbit. And um, I've forgotten now his name. Uh, when I was teaching, I, I taught his son. He was the winemaker at um, Inglenook. And when Inglenook, when the Daniels family, John Daniels family, sold Inglenook, the winemaker there, and God darn it, I've forgotten it. I got to, you know, pst. anyway, he's, he, he went out and burned all the, all the wine records. Mm. He was so pissed. Yeah. Um, and at that time, Inglenook and Beaulieu were the two, and, and Krug to a certain extent, uh, Beringer less or so, uh, were the major sure. uh, kind of quality wineries. And at that time, uh, Napa Valley was known for its red wines. And, and if you wanted a white wine, you might go to Livermore Valley and, and, and uh, get a, a Wente Brothers. Sure. Um, and, and, there's, and, and then there weren't very many people in Napa Valley at that time. There, was no, um, there were no pizza places. Um, there were really no fine dining. I'm not sure there was fine dining hardly in the country, let alone here. Well, it was genuinely rural. It was genuinely rural. And, yeah. and again, like we said before, a challenge to get places. Just to think back on that time is pretty amazing. Did you ever meet John Daniel Jr.? I never did, no. Okay. I mean, I, I, I know his, his children, the daughters. Yeah, sure. Uh, Marky and, um, uh, Robin. and Robin. And I used to play a lot of tennis with Robin, uh, both with and against her. Uh, back when I used to play tennis, <laughs> which I can't hardly remember now either. Well, time moves forward. Yes. It's nice that she's in the business, although time moves on and her daughters, I believe, are taking over the business yeah. as time goes on. We were just talking about a couple of other vintners in the Valley, which you've known far longer than I have, but a few I've met. And pricing is always a problem and a concern in Napa because prices have gone through the roof. But Smith Drone and a handful of other wineries have kept their prices affordable, which is something I admire and appreciate because I do like your wines. Uh, not an easy thing to do these days, both from an image point of view as well as making a profit. Yes, that's true. Um, I got into this business when, when wine at 6 or $7 was really expensive wine. Uh, in the early 70s, BV Reserve was like two seventy-five a bottle and... Um, and I remember that their reserve was maybe three and a quarter a bottle. 
And um, I remember also that and most of the wine back then was in either half gallon jugs or jug, you know, gallon jugs. And I remember when Gallo Hardy Burgundy went from a buck twenty-five a half gallon to a buck twenty-nine, and I'm going, "That's my industry." <laughs> <laughs> Little did I know. Yeah, right. Um, so it, it's it's out there. One of the things that we've always tried to do is to make wine that isn't. A, a collectible, celebra- celebratory wine, but a wine that can be at, at the higher end of a week, a, a midweek drinking wine. Uh, and so, you know, we've always been conscious about it because, you know, we never had a lot of money. Um, uh, and then also, too, I think what's driven me in some of my marketing is I always wanted the Volkswagen with the Porsche engine in it. Mm. I never really wanted the Porsche with the Volkswagen engine <laughs> in it. Um, and, and, and I came into the industry, and that is just the exact opposite of what this industry is. This is all about hype and spin and basically BS. Um, and as I also like to say, in some ways, Napa Valley has turned into a, a kind of a remembrance, if you would, of the Italian Renaissance. My Duomo's bigger than your Duomo. <laughs> My church painter is more famous than your church painter. Yeah. And uh, as I now quip, we don't do Corinthian columns at the winery. We, th- we think wineries should be uh, what they are, which is a place where we bring in through one door grapes, and some years later, or a year or two or three later, out goes wine out the other door. And what the building looks like really has no relevance to the wine quality. All of the wine quality really originates in the vineyard based on the site, the soil, the climate, the location, um, the attitude of, of the owners. Uh, and, and, um, and just because you drop $15 million into a building that you know, makes architectural digest doesn't make your wine any better. Yeah, exactly. And it's important to remember, too, for our listeners, uh, there are wineries like yourself that are still here and well worth visiting that have maintained reasonable prices and have made extraordinary quality wines. It's just a matter of seeking them out. Yes. And um, and, and, and I, you know, that that's who we are. Uh, but it's a little bit more complicated than that because. You then run into reviewers, um, and if you don't if you don't charge enough for your wine, you don't get a good review. And it's a silly thing, but I think in a lot of ways, some of the international reviewers uh, or the major magazines review the winery, not the wine. That's well put. I agree. Yeah, and that's not what it's about. But I think the same could be said of people who review films, people who review books. It's the the idea of are you writing about your opinion or what the fact is of what you've drank, what you've read, what you've seen. Oh, oh it's human nature. There's no question it about it. It is, unfortunately. Yeah, and and um, uh, when I taught, I used to say to people, look, uh, 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 don't don't taste with your eyes, taste with your mouth. But that is so hard to do. People, people just don't quite have the courage of their convictions. 
And so they, they buy something, and if it's expensive and it comes in a bottle that weighs you know, 400 pounds, they think it's really going to be good. When in fact, you should just, you know, one of the things I say is, you're, you know, the, the wine's first obligation is to give pleasure. And so wine needs to, to, to give pleasure. If it doesn't give pleasure to you, I don't care how much it costs. It's, it's not, it doesn't mean it's a bad wine. It just means you don't like it. Right, right, exactly. It is, in my mind, a great deal about the history, the history of the winemakers who've been working so hard so many years to maintain the quality, to never let quality slip, to make the word quality relevant and important to you, I say thank you as a wine lover and to those other wineries that are still out there. And for our listeners who'd like to learn about you, Stu, and uh, Spring Mountain and uh, Smith Madrone and this extraordinary place to come visit, uh, what is your website? smithmadrone.com. Excellent. I appreciate your opening your house to me and taking the time today. Thank you very much. It's, uh, it's, it's one of the joys of, of the wine business, which is having discussions and verbal conversations. It's, it's what makes the wine world go around for all of us. I totally agree. Thank you. Learn more by visiting smithmadrone.com. Thanks for listening. Subscribe to the podcast at lifebetweenthevines.com or sign up to our YouTube channel. You can also follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Life Between the Vines comes to you from Fifth Floor Recording Company in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. Produced and edited by Ray Fister. Our host is Kay Paskoff. Our web geek is Dan Gisha. Original music by Ray Fister. Copyright 2023.